listener. Ruth Ben-Geert's latest book, Strong Men, is not about weightlifters. The subtitle tells it all. How they rise, why they succeed and how they fall. It's about leaders from Hitler and Mussolini to Trump, Erdogan and Orban, all of whom have on their agenda make insert name of country, great again. They rise through a populist appeal as the one man who can solve all of the nation's problems. We thought that was all behind us after the fall of fascism. But then we also thought land wars in Europe were behind us. But neither of them are. Ruth, it's great to talk to you. Do do you think there is a yearning in many people's minds for the strong man, the authoritarian leader, the big boss who can solve all the problems? Yes, there is. And one of the most interesting things that I found is why and when do these people appeal? And what I found is that when there's been a lot of change in society, a lot of social progress. Some people are all aboard with that. And then many other people are very frightened and they feel they're losing their status in society. So in the first series of our Defending Democracy podcasts, uh, we spoke with Theresa May, the former British Prime Minister. And Theresa said that she felt that these type of authoritarian populists, these Trump-type figures are only able to succeed because many people feel that traditional liberal democracy has failed them. And so she felt the best defence was to make sure that liberal democracies, you know, governments in Australia, America, Europe, UK and so forth, actually do their job, you know, and deliver equitable economic growth, health services, education services and all of those things. So do you, do, you, do you think that the authoritarian strongman is a product of a, of a perception that conventional democracy has failed to deliver? In part. In, in part, the allure, the enchantment of the strongman is because these people are superb at exploiting grievances, people who are profoundly dissatisfied and people who are extremists. So part of this is is about the appeal uh, to people who are not interested in democracy whatsoever. They've been waiting for somebody to come along and speak their language and signal to them. And that's what Trump knew how to do from the very, very beginning. But there also is a component of people who do feel disenchanted and left behind by liberal democracy. And Trump was extremely smart. Uh, remember, he's a marketer in reaching out to some of these people, the white working class, and called them the forgotten. You are the forgotten, but you are forgotten no longer. Every single American will have the opportunity to realize his or her fullest potential. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. So this was very powerful. Oh, yes. And so he was able to get... uh, 
those people feeling like you cared about them. And authoritarians who know how to exploit emotions, they know, you know, Erdogan who cries on camera, uh, Bolsonaro who, you know, uh, streams video of himself when he would go into the hospital. And Trump tells people he loves them. He tells his follower he loves them. So they've been able to exploit this actually more than liberal Democrat politicians. Yes. What, what about labels, however? Let, let me read you. that This is a quote from a former Australian Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, who was the Prime Minister before me. And it was in December 2022. He'd gone to the second Danube summit in Hungary. And this is what he said. I do not regard Orban as some kind of right-wing ogre. I think he has been the Margaret Thatcher of Hungary, if you like. Hmm. He has been a very effective leader and a lot of conservatives look at Viktor Orban thinking, wish we had leaders like him. That's the end of the quote. Now, do you think that there is any way Orban can be regarded as a conservative? I personally do not. However, since... Mussolini's days, these authoritarians have been very savvy at making allies and appealing to conservatives. And often conservatives are the one who, who ones who put them in power. That happened with Mussolini, that happened with Hitler. Yeah. So there's a whole middle ground there that is shared. And the smart leaders will uh, give goodies and do favors. This is called the authoritarian bargain. <laughs> where extremists, uh, and I do consider Orban an extremist actually in his platforms, they ally with elites. That's part of right-wing authoritarianism is this straddling between conservatism and extremism. How, how would you describe Viktor Orban? He's a very savvy politician who, you know, used to be center-left and then he realized where the wind was going and he became center-right. And he is the master right now in Europe of electoral autocracy, which is why the, the Republican Party in America worships him and has its conferences in Budapest. And Tucker Carlson uh, did a whole week of his show there. While America goes woke and abandons all common sense, Tucker Carlson highlights how one country's fighting back against far left policies. Hungary versus George Soros, the fight for civilization. I'm an American, I love America, I will always defend America, but the idea that Hungary is less a democracy than the US or than Ukraine, I mean, it's just a lie. Anyone who says that is either lying or doesn't know anything. And Orban does not, you don't hear about people falling out of windows uh, like you do in Russia. So he doesn't use uh, apparent violence. What he does is he uses pressure and, and legal threats. One of the ways autocrats harass people is uh, by lawsuits or the threat of lawsuits to ruin them financially. So Orban uh, convinced, and that should be between quotes, uh, 500 owners of media properties in Hungary in 2018 to donate, that should be in quotes, their assets to a government allied foundation a foundation controlled by an Orban ally. And this was incredible for its scale and its import. And when the elections, for example, came around, the opposition's message had difficulty reaching a lot of the population because he controls so much of the media. 
And so he doesn't, you don't have to have state control from the top, like with the Nazis. You have, and this is true with Modi too, you have allies and cronies of the leader who are, you know, in charge of the big media properties and also small ones too now. And so you have this kind of capillary distribution so that the opposition's message cannot get through. If you go back to, you know, founding thinkers in what we would regard as conservatism, like Edmund Burke, you have a concept of an organic concept of society and the idea that conservatives embrace change slowly, organically, as Quinton Hogg, you know, the later Lord Hailsham, who wrote a very good short book about conservatism uh, just after the Second World War, he used to talk about how the role of the conservatives was to integrate change and make sure that it is embedded in the rich subsoil of British political tradition. But above all, conservatives' role was to support established institutions. And yet, whether it is Hitler or Mussolini in an extreme case, or Orban in Hungary, or even Trump in the United States, you have got authoritarian leaders who, yes, had the support of some, you know, right-wing conventionally conservative elements to get to where they got, but then showed no respect for established institutions, particularly critical things like an independent judiciary, Mm -hmm. the rule of law, and so forth. Yes, and in fact, it's very good that you're bringing this up because what does the word conservative really mean today when you speak about these 21st century rulers? Mm. You know, a lot of uh, we're now starting our uh, 2024 presidential race in the U.S., and, and they're all saying that they're conservatives. But conservative parties don't stage coups, <laughs> uh, which was January 6th. Mm. They don't overthrow, by their nature, conservatives uh, are not supposed to be overthrowing the government. <laughs> Nora, another, another thing that's often um, not put in this frame, though, if conservatives are about change through reform and and traditions, how do you explain the label for people like Orban and Erdogan and all of them who traffic in conspiracy theories and destroy the notion of truth? If you have no truth and you don't believe in science anymore, you don't believe in uh, an independent judiciary, you don't believe in any of these fundamentals, how can you be a conservative? (laughs) Well, exactly. Ruth, let's Could you explore this question? You you, you touched earlier on the way Trump had appealed to white working class voters and yet there is Trump, a billionaire, uh, supporting tax cuts for corporations and wealthy individuals with an agenda that is hardly one that traditionally you would have thought would have appealed to working class voters. Uh, Do you think that the part of the problem and the opportunity for right-wing authoritarians, has been that the parties of the left, the traditional parties of the left, the Democrats, Labor Party, that sort of thing, have embraced or been seen to be identified with social issues, whether it is legalising same-sex marriage, which I might say my government did in Australia and I was leading a centre-right government, as you probably know, but nonetheless, you know, same-sex marriage, abortion, climate action, all of these issues that have been turned into values or identity issues by the populist right and that that has enabled them to get 
working class voters, people on low incomes, particularly in industries that have been really hurt by globalisation, to in effect vote against their own economic interests. Yes, I'm glad you put it like that because I truly consider one of the core um, things about authoritarianism and one of the most tragic is that it is about getting people to act against their own interests. <laughs> and one of the reasons I wrote Strong Men was to debunk this, a lot of these myths, like authoritarianism is good for society, it's good for the economy. And indeed, it's the opposite, because whether it's Putin who has a kleptocracy or, you know, Erdogan who plunders, uh, he's plundered, you know, $40 billion worth of businesses, like private citizens' businesses, uh, if they're not, you know, loyalist businesses. All of this flies under the radar. I mean, I mean, an authoritarian, of course, can get elected, and they often do. Uh, today, you don't have to ban elections. You get into power and then you keep elections going, but you game the field. And so a very good example, uh, very recent, uh, the Turkish elections. So what did Erdogan do? The only man who could have beat him in the opposition was the very popular, charismatic, much younger uh, Istanbul mayor, Ekrem Imamoglu. Hundreds of people are rallying in Istanbul in support of the mayor after a court sentenced him to jail for insulting public officials. So Erdogan, to prevent him from becoming the presidential candidate of the opposition coalition, slapped a jail sentence over his head, but did not send him to jail. Just the threat that and at any moment he could be sent to jail. So Imamoglu was not able to be the presidential candidate of the opposition. So in that way, he gamed the field from the beginning. Turning to the United States, Ruth, do you think Trump will be the Republican nominee? And if he is, do you think he'll win in 2024? I really see Trump as a cult leader rather than a conventional politician. The bonds he has with his followers are not those of a conventional politician. And he's domesticated the GOP. He did it in record time. It's astonishing what he was able to do in just a few years with the storied Republican Party. Um, you know, because think about it, Berlusconi, he had the same relation, but he founded Forza Italia. Trump came in from the outside, and this is a very old party, and only one of two parties, and they became his personal tool. And although, of course, we see the field is populating with other candidates, uh, and he doesn't have uh, everybody behind him, he has a hold over people, both through his usual, you know, blackmail and threats and, and popularity. How significant in this takeover of the Republican Party, this shift, as you say, of a traditional centre-right conservative party to this populist Trump cult. How important a role do you think Fox News played in that transformation? Honestly, in terms of uh, mass indoctrination to create the kind of psychological and political environment for a Trump to have gotten where he is, uh, they are like co-author, honestly. And Tucker Carlson was extraordinarily important as a demagogue alongside Trump. He may dislike Trump, but their messages aligned. Authoritarianism f flourishes when there's fear, when there's paranoia, 
And Fox News delivered that day in, day out. And so together they were a devastating pair that really shifted the political climate of the GOP and the Republican voter base. And so now we have a party. I truly, and there's a lot of studies of comparative politics that back this up. The GOP is an autocratic entity now, and its platforms and its methods are comparable to Modi's party, Erdogan's party. It's not comparable to any kind of conservative party in, in Europe or anywhere else at this point. Do you think this campaign that's upcoming in 2024 is going to see the kind of violence that we saw on January 6th, that the passions, the animosities that are being whipped up on the right are going to uh, result in a more violent political experience? It, it could be, and many experts uh, here of political violence are, are forecasting this. The Republicans have been kind of um, frightening people about uh, issues of you know, trans individuals and all of these culture war, which I don't even, it's not even culture, it's people's lives on the line. And so you're starting to see um, kind of uh, grassroots violence and, and it's not talked about enough. Uh, grassroots intimidation. We've had uh, threats are up 400% against uh, members of Congress. You had Nancy Pelosi's uh, husband who had his skull bashed in with a hammer and it wasn't put it was put on the bottom of the front page in the New York Times, whereas from where I sit, it should have been right at the top. <laughs> that was a big deal. Yes, I agree. Ruth, many times I've contemplating the political scene, I've reflected on William Butler Yeats' poem, The Second Coming, just written just after the First World War, you know, when he writes, as I, as I recall, Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. How can the centre hold? How does the centre fight back? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a difficult question because um, I think that it has to start with being very clear about what conservatism is going to mean. Our country is particularly afflicted because we have only two parties and we're in a very dramatic situation because if you have a bipartisan country and one of the two has exited democracy completely at this point after January 6th, how do you have a center? What does that mean? Yeah, I, I do think your structural issues are a big problem. I mean, we, we, we have in, in Australia, we have a much more centrist political debate and we have three features to our electoral system which you don't, which I think make a gigantic difference. We've had them for a, a century so that I, I can't take any credit for them but they are firstly we have compulsory voting uh, so everybody over the age of 18 has to be on the electoral roll and they have to vote and so turnout is around 93% or thereabouts Secondly, districts are independently drawn, so there isn't any gerrymandering. And thirdly, we have ranked choice voting, preferential voting. You know, we're, we're lucky, very lucky in that respect. Yeah, I'm very haunted as a, somebody who studies democracy and its opposite with the fact that, you know, 80 million people didn't vote uh, in the last election. That's a lot mm. of people. Yeah. 
Yeah, it sure is. It's all messed up. Anyway, Ruth, the good thing is you're there shining a light on this. And I think one of the most important things in countering authoritarianism is calling it out for what it is. And you have done that so eloquently. So thank you very much. Thank you. podcast was written and produced by myself and Lisa Main. Music was composed by Helena Chaika. Music